Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 81 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Mad Emperor Caligula. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. On January 24th in the year AD 41, uh, 1,979 years ago today, the Roman Emperor Caligula was killed by members of his own guard. Spoilers. It was a shocking event, and it shocked everyone in the Roman world. But it also came as a great relief, for Caligula was a mad emperor who had tormented the empire as an uncontrollable and perverted tyrant. What was it that led Caligula's own guards to kill him? And what mysterious connection might Caligula have to the Bible and biblical prophecy? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, we often begin with whether we have a personal connection to the mystery we're looking at. Do you have a personal connection to this one? In one sense, yes. Uh, I've been aware of Caligula for a long time. I've read and watched I, Claudius, where Caligula is depicted. I've read the works of ancient Roman and Jewish historians that discuss him and his reign. I've studied the works of biblical scholars that connect him with biblical prophecy. And I've been to the Palatine Hill in Rome where he was assassinated. Also, I know you have a connection because you're Italian. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I've been to the Palatine Hill. <laughs> okay. Uh, by the way, there will be a mix of Latin pronunciations in this episode. One of the things you find out if you study Latin is that it gets pronounced different ways. There's a classical pronunciation. There's a, an ecclesiastical pronunciation. There's also a kind of traditional English pronunciation. And for example, depending on depending on which pronunciation you're using, you might have a given author named Cicero, Cicero, or more familiarly, Cicero. Now, when I'm reading church documents, ecclesiastical documents, I naturally use the ecclesiastical pronunciation. But when I'm not, I may use other pronunciations depending on, you know, whether I, it's a classical source or whether... I think a given name will be more familiar to the audience. So I'm not going to be talking to you about Kikaro. No one would know who I'm talking about. Okay, very good. All right, so let's uh, start with the basics. When did Caligula live? He lived entirely in the first century. He was born on August 31st in AD 12, and that would have been when Jesus was about 14 or 15 years old. He became emperor in AD 37, which is about four years after Jesus's crucifixion. And at the time, Caligula was 24 years old. He reigned for three years and 10 months, and his guards killed him on January 24th of 41 when he was 28 years old. So what family was Caligula born into? Well, actually, Caligula wasn't his name. It was his nickname. His actual name, which contains his family name, was Gaius Julius Caesar. And he was named after the famous Julius Caesar, whose proper name also was Gaius Julius Caesar. Uh, so he was obviously part of the same ruling family as Julius Caesar. By adoption, he was Julius Caesar's great-grandson. And uh, his biological father, though, also a member of the same family, 
was an extremely popular Roman general named Germanicus. So why was Germanicus so popular? Well, not only was he one of the ruling family, uh, Germanicus also was the son of a very popular man who had won a great victory over the Germans and who thus received the honorary name Germanicus. That was a Roman custom. If you won a great victory, they'd give you an honorary name based on who you beat in battle. So if you defeated the Britons, you could get the name Britannicus. If you defeated the Germans, you could get their name, the name Germanicus. Germanicus's father had won such a victory, and that's one thing that helped his son become popular. But it wasn't the only thing. Germanicus had lots of personal qualities that people really admired. Here's how the Roman historian Suetonius describes him. It is the general opinion that Germanicus possessed all the highest qualities of body and mind to a degree never equaled by anyone, a handsome person, unequaled valor, surpassing ability in the oratory and learning of Greece and Rome, unexampled kindliness, and a remarkable desire and capacity for winning men's regard and inspiring their affection. His legs were too slender for the rest of his figure, but he gradually brought them to proper proportions by constant horseback riding after meals. Unassuming at home and abroad, he always entered the free and federate towns without bodyguards. Wherever he came upon the tombs of distinguished men, he always offered sacrifice to their shades. He reaped plentiful fruit from these virtues, for he was so respected and beloved by his kindred that Augustus, to say nothing of the rest of his relatives, after hesitating for a long time whether to appoint him his successor, had him adopted by Tiberius. He was so popular with the masses that, according to many writers, whenever he came to any place or left one, he was sometimes in danger of his life from the crowds that met him or saw him off. So, really popular guy. <laughs> he also was a successful playwright and penned several comedies in Greek. Mm, I, I like the description of his legs, by the way. That was a, he had a good leg day and worked yeah, on his that's, legs. That's <laughs> one of the things you find when you read Roman authors is they, they will describe people's physical form and they'll note both their positive and negative qualities. But <laughs> even though he had legs that were a little skinny, he, built, he beefed them up by horseback riding. Of course... <laughs> You could also do that by dancing. Mm, yes. But da dancing was not considered proper for Romans. That uh, was something Greeks did. That is a great flaw in the Romans, apparently. Yeah. If Germanicus was so popular, why didn't he become emperor? Actually, he could have. When Augustus died and the Senate made Tiberius his successor, the troops wanted to declare Germanicus emperor. But Germanicus wouldn't let him do it. And that is something that made him even more honorable that he had the chance to become emperor and didn't do it. He might have become emperor after Tiberius, but he died at age 34. While he was in Syrian Antioch, that's the city where St. Paul, which the St. Paul later used as his missionary home base for the missionary journeys, and it's the city where the word Christian was coined, Germanicus was there and he got sick and eventually died. And according to Suetonius, there was some suspicion that he was poisoned for besides the dark spots, which appeared all over his body and the froth, which flowed from his mouth after he had been reduced to ashes, his heart was found entire among his bones. And it is supposed to be a characteristic of that organ that when steeped in poison, it cannot be destroyed by fire. Now, the belief was that he met his death through the wiles of Tiberius, aided and abetted by Gnaeus Piso. Gnaeus Piso. Gnaeus Piso. This man had been made governor of Syria at about that time, 
and realizing that he must give offense either to the father or the son, as if there were no alternative, he never ceased to show the bitterest enmity towards Germanicus in word and deed, even after the latter fell ill. So the popular opinion was that Tiberius had Gnaeus Piso poison Germanicus, which at the time, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in our episode on religion and magic and stuff, was bound up with casting magic spells on the person that uh, you wanted to die. Yet, even as this was happening, Germanicus showed remarkable generosity of spirit. Germanicus was so mild and lenient that when Piso was annulling his decrees and maltreating his dependents, he could not make up his mind to break with him until he found himself assailed also by potions and spells. Even then he went no further than formally to renounce Piso's friendship in the old-time fashion and to bid his household to avenge him in case anything should befall him. Ultimately, after Germanicus's death, Piso got what was, what was coming to him, and the Senate condemned, it, condemned him to death. All right, so what happened when Germanicus died? There was an amazing show of public grief. On the day when he passed away, the temples were stoned and the altars of the gods thrown down, while some flung their household gods into the street and cast out their newly born children. Even barbarian peoples, so they say, who were engaged in war with us or with one another, unanimously consented to a truce, as if all in common had suffered a domestic tragedy. It is said that some princes put off their beards and had their wives' heads shaved as a token of the deepest mourning, that even the king of kings, that is the king of Parthia, suspended his exercise at hunting and the banquets with his grandees, which among the Parthians is a sign of public mourning. People took some comfort in the fact that Germanicus had, led, had left offspring, though. He'd had nine children, even though he was only 34. He'd had nine children, six of whom survived him, and they consisted of three daughters and three sons. One of the sons was Gaius Julius Caesar, who was seven years old at the time. So you mentioned that's not Gaius uh, was not how he was known. Uh, how did Gaius get that nickname Caligula? He grew up in his father's military camp, and he was a popular little boy with the troops. He even had a little soldier's uniform, including soldier's boots, which were really a kind of sandal from our perspective. The Latin word for a soldier's boot is caliga, and so the troops nicknamed him Caligula, or Little Boot, and that's where the name Caligula comes from. So what happened to Caligula after his father died? He was shuffled around to various relatives who took care of him until personal misfortunes befell them one by one and he had to be passed to a new relative. He ended up living with the emperor Tiberius, who was then spending all of his time away from Rome on the island of Capri, indulging in some rather depraved desires. Tiberius had treated other members of Caligula's branch of the family really badly. Not only was it rumored that Tiberius had had Germanicus, Caligula's father, murdered, Tiberius also imprisoned or banished Caligula's mother and his two brothers. But, according to historians, Caligula was a really good actor and hid all of his resentment from Tiberius and managed not to get killed. In fact, Tiberius named Caligula as one of his heirs, along with a younger cousin, of his named Gamellus, who was supposed to be his co-heir. But it's said that Tiberius had an ulterior motive in naming Caligula as an heir, because supposedly he recognized Caligula's bad qualities 
and wanted to arrange an even worse emperor to follow him so he'd look better by comparison. Allegedly, Tiberius would occasionally say that by letting Caligula live, he was nursing a viper for the Roman people. Nice. So how did Caligula become emperor? Eventually, in AD 37, like I said, about four years after the crucifixion, Tiberius died, and it was said that Caligula brought this about. According to Suetonius, Caligula seduced Ennia Naevia, wife of Tiberius's head guard, Macro, who at that time commanded the Praetorian Guard, even promising to marry her if he became emperor and guaranteeing this promise by an oath and a written contract. Having through her wormed himself into Macro's favor, he poisoned Tiberius, as some think, and ordered that his ring be taken from him while he still breathed, and then, suspecting that he was trying to hold fast to it, ordered that a pillow be put over his face or even strangled the old man with his own hand. So Caligula, either through Macro or by his own hand, is said to have murdered Tiberius by poisoning and then by strangulation or smothering with a pillow. How did people react when he became emperor? They were overjoyed. The Roman people did not like Tiberius, who had become a cruel, old, depraved, absentee emperor. And now they had this new young emperor who was the son of the super megazord popular Germanicus. (laughs) Suetonius writes, By thus gaining the throne, he fulfilled the highest hopes of the Roman people, or I may say of all mankind, since he was the prince most earnestly desired by the great part of the provincials and soldiers, many of whom had known him in his infancy, as well as by the whole body of the city populace, because of the memory of his father, Germanicus, and pity for a family that was all but extinct. Accordingly, when he set out from Mycenaeum, though he was in mourning garb and escorting the body of Tiberius, yet his progress was marked by altars, victims, and blazing torches, and he was met by a dense and joyful throng who called him, besides other propitious names, their star, their chick, their babe, and their nursling. When he entered the city, full and absolute power was at once put into his hands by the unanimous consent of the Senate and of the mob, which forced its way into the house, and no attention was paid to the wish of Tiberius, who in his will had named his other grandson, Gemellus, who was still a boy, joint heir with Caligula. So great was the public rejoicing that within the next three months, or less than that, More than 160,000 animals are said to have been slain in sacrifice. To this unbounded love of his citizens was added marked devotion from foreigners. Artabanus, for example, king of the Parthians, who was always outspoken in his hatred and contempt for Tiberius, voluntarily sought Caligula's friendship and came to a conference with the consular governor. Then crossing the Euphrates, he paid homage to the Roman eagles and standards and to the statues of the Caesars. Caligula also did a bunch of stuff to make himself popular, like recalling those that had been banished by Tiberius and brought them back to Rome. Uh, He also publicly burned incriminating documents that Tiberius had on people and a bunch of other stuff. According to the first century Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, there was universal prosperity and happiness which reigned everywhere and the absence of all grief and fear, and the daily and nightly exhibitions of joy and festivity throughout every house and throughout the whole people, which lasted continually without any interruption during the first seven months of his reign. So for seven months, from March of 37 to September of 37, everything was great. And then everything changed. How so? In October of 37, Caligula became ill. 
according to Philo. But in the eighth month, a severe disease attacked Gaius, who had changed the manner of his living, which was a little while before, while Tiberius was alive, very simple, and on that account more wholesome than one of great sumptuousness and luxury. For he began to indulge in abundance of strong wine and eating of rich dishes, and in the abundant license of insatiable desires and great insolence, and in the unseasonable use of hot baths and emetics, and then again in wine-bibbing and drunkenness, and returning gluttony, and in lust after boys and women, and in everything else which tends to destroy both soul and body, and all the bonds which unite and strengthen the two. For the rewards of temperance are health and strength, and the wages of intemperance are weakness and disease, which bring a man near to death. Philo attributes Caligula's illness to loose living, but others haven't been so sure. Suetonius mentions that as a child, Caligula had suffered from falling sickness, or what we now call epilepsy. And uh, some people think that might have returned. Others think it may have been a viral illness. And the Roman author Juvenal reports that Caligula was given a magic potion. And since magic and chemistry were the same thing at this time, in modern language, that would mean he may have been poisoned. So how did people react when he fell ill? They were horrified. The awesome new young emperor was suddenly stricken. And according to Philo, People forsaking their former life of delicateness and luxury now wore mournful faces, and every house in every city became full of depression and melancholy, their grief being now equal to and counterbalancing the joy which they experienced a short time before. For every portion of the habitable world was diseased in his sickness, feeling affected with a more terrible disease than that which was oppressing Gaius, for his sickness was that of the body alone, but the universal malady which was oppressing all men everywhere was one which attacked the vigor of their souls, their peace, their hopes, their participation in and enjoyment of all good things. For men began to remember how numerous and how great are the evils which spring from anarchy, famine, and war, and the destruction of trees, and devastations, and deprivation of lands, and plundering of money, and the intolerable fear of slavery and death, which no one can relieve, all which evils appear to admit of but one remedy, namely the recovery of Gaius. In other words, they thought the empire would become destabilized without a strong emperor, and they would all suffer. Correspondingly, Suetonius reports, Members of the Roman people all spent the whole night about the palace. Some even vowed to fight as gladiators, and others posted placards offering their lives if the ailing prince were spared. And their hopes were answered because Caligula got better. Philo reports, Accordingly, when his disease began to abate in a very short time, even the men who were living on the very confines of the empire heard of it and rejoiced, until at length his perfect recovery was announced by fresh arrivals, at which news they again returned to their original cheerfulness, each thinking the health of Gaius to be his own salvation. And this feeling pervaded every continent and every island, for no one can recollect so great and general a joy affecting any one country or any one nation at the good health or prosperity of their governor, as now pervaded the whole of the habitable world at the recovery of Gaius, and at his being able to resume the exercise of his power and having completely got rid of his sickness. But their joy would be short-lived, because Caligula emerged from his sickness a changed man. According to some sources, Caligula didn't fully recover from his illness because it had damaged him mentally and he was now insane. 
However, some modern authors think that his brush with death merely unleashed psychological tendencies that were already there, and some think that if he was poisoned or suspected he had been poisoned, it led him to become extra paranoid and cruel. Uh, Whatever the case, there was a marked change in how he conducted himself, and to quote Suetonius, so much for Caligula as emperor, we must now tell of his career as a monster. So what did he start to do? Well, Caligula had fallen ill in October of 37, so we're now turning the corner into the year 38, and Wikipedia provides a concise summary of what began to happen around this time. Caligula started to kill off or exile those who were close to him, or whom he saw as a serious threat. Perhaps his illness reminded him of his mortality and of the desire of others to advance into his place. He had his cousin and adopted son, Tiberius Gemellus, executed, an act that outraged Caligula's and Gemellus's mutual grandmother, Antonia Minor. She is said to have committed suicide, although Suetonius hints that Gal- Caligula actually poisoned her. He had his father-in-law, Marcus Junius Solanus, and his brother-in-law, Marcus Lepidus, executed as well. His uncle Claudius was spared only because Caligula preferred to keep him as a laughingstock. His favorite sister, Julia Drusilla, died in 38 of a fever. His other two sisters, Lavilla and Agrippina the Younger, were exiled. So, lots of high-up people, including members of Caligula's own family, are being exiled or executed. The same was happening for others as well. Suetonius reports, When animals to feed the wild beasts, which he had provided for a gladiatorial show, were rather costly, he selected criminals to be devoured, and reviewing the line of prisoners without examining the charges, but merely taking his place in the middle of a colonnade, he bade them be led away, quote, from that bald head to that other bald head. Many men of honorable rank were first disfigured with the marks of branding irons and then condemned to the mines, to work at building roads, or to be thrown to the wild beasts, or else he shut them up in cages on all fours like animals, or had them sawn asunder. Not all these punishments were for serious offenses, but merely for criticizing one of his shows, or for never having sworn by his genius. He forced parents to attend the execution of their sons, sending a litter for one man who pleaded ill health, and inviting another to dinner immediately after witnessing the death, and trying to rouse him to gaiety and jesting by a great show of affability. He had the manager of his gladiatorial shows and beast baitings beaten with chains in his presence for several successive days, and would not kill him until he was disgusted at the stench of his putrefied brain. He burned a writer of Atellan farces alive in the middle of the arena of the amphitheater because of a humorous line of double meaning. When a Roman knight on being thrown to the wild beasts loudly protested his innocence, he took him out, cut off his tongue, and put him back again. Also, remember the men who had made vows to fight in the arena or give their lives if the emperor recovered from his illness? Caligula made them go through with these vows. A man who had made vows to fight in the arena if the emperor recovered, he compelled to keep his word, watched him as he fought sword in hand and would not let him go until he was victorious, and then only after many entreaties. Another who had offered his life for the same reason but delayed to kill himself He turned over to his slaves with orders to drive him through the streets, decked with sacred boughs and fillets, calling for the fulfillment of his vow, and finally hurl him from the embankment. Meanwhile, Caligula was living the high life and rapidly burning through money with extravagant spending. Suetonius reports, In reckless extravagance he outdid the prodigals of all times in ingenuity, inventing a new sort of baths and 
unnatural varieties of food and feasts, for he would bathe in hot or cold perfumed oils, drink pearls of great price dissolved in vinegar, and set before his guests loaves and meats of gold, declaring that a man ought either to be frugal or be Caesar. He even scattered large sums of money among the commons from the roof of the Basilica Julia for several days in succession. He also built Liburnian galleys with ten banks of oars, with sterns set with gems, multicolored sails, huge spacious baths, colonnades, and banquet halls, and even a great variety of vines and fruit trees, that on board of them he might recline at table from an early hour and coast along the shores of Campania amid songs and choruses. He built villas and country houses with other dis disregard of expense, caring for nothing so much as to do what men said was impossible. So he built moles out into the deep and stormy sea, tunneled rocks of hardest flint, built up plains to the height of mountains and raised mountains to the level of the plain, all with incredible dispatch, since the penalty for delay was death. To make a long story short, vast sums of money, including the 2.7 billion sesterces which Tiberius Caesar had amassed, were squandered by him in less than the revolution of a year. This spending caused a financial crisis to begin in late 38 or 39, and to make ends meet, Caligula started executing people in order to claim their estates and keep the spending spree going. One of the things he did in AD 39 was to build a three-and-a-half-mile-long pontoon bridge using ships as pontoons across the Bay of Baie. He then covered the bridge with dirt so he could ride across it. Suetonius reports, He devised a novel and unheard-of pageant, for he bridged the gap between Baie and the Mola Putioli, a distance of about 3,600 paces, by bringing together merchant ships from all sides and anchoring them in a double line. Afterwards, a mound of earth was heaped upon them and fashioned in the manner of the Appian Way. Over this bridge he rode back and forth for two successive days, the first day on a comparisoned horse, himself resplendent in a crown of oak leaves, a buckler, a sword, and a cloak of cloth of gold. On the second day he rode in the dress of a charioteer, in a car drawn by a pair of famous horses, carrying before him a boy named Darius, one of the hostages from Parthia, and attended by the entire Praetorian Guard and a company of his friends in Gallic chariots. And get the reason that Caligula may have done this. When I was a boy, I used to hear my grandfather say that the reason for the work, as revealed by the emperor's confidential courtiers, was that Thrasyllus, the astrologer, had declared to Tiberius, when he was worried about his successor and inclined toward his natural grandson, that Gaius had no more chance of becoming emperor than of riding about over the Gulf of Baie with horses. So, according to Suetonius, Caligula may have made the pontoon bridge and ridden across it just to spite the prediction of Tiberius's favorite astrologer, Thrasyllus. Imagine if Thrasyllus had said, the pigs would fly before he'd become emperor. <laughs> <laughs> it would have a nice, interesting catapult or trebuchet. <laughs> yeah. So, how did the Roman people react to all this outrageous behavior? Well, we haven't covered even half of the stuff Caligula did. In particular, we're going light on the personal depravity that he inflicted on other people. But needless to say, the Romans were outraged and horrified. Caligula's attitude was basically talk to the hand, and he instituted a reign of terror. Suetonius reports that he quoted a familiar line from a tragic poet, let them hate me so long as they but fear me. He put Macro and his wife to death, even though they'd helped him gain the throne. 
and he got into a feud with the Roman Senate. Remember those incriminating documents Tiberius had and which Caligula burned at the start of his reign to show his goodwill? Well, it turns out he either didn't burn them or had a copy because he started producing them and using them as the basis for accusing senators. He also humiliated and killed senators, according to Suetonius. He was no whit more respectful or mild towards the Senate, allowing some who had held the highest offices to run in their togas for several miles beside his chariot and to wait on him at table, standing napkin in hand, either at the head of his couch or at his feet. Others he secretly put to death, yet continued to send for them as if they were alive, after a few days falsely asserting that they had committed suicide. He also continued to act crazy in general. For example, he had a favorite horse named Incitatus, whose name means swift in Latin, so it was a fast horse. This uh, was the horse, in fact, that he rode across the pontoon bridge. One thing that you hear popularly said today is that he made Incitatus a consul, a high government official. But according to the Roman historian Cassius Dio... One of the horses, which he named Incitatus, he used to invite to dinner, where he would offer him golden barley and drink his health in wine from golden goblets. He swore by the animal's life and fortune and even promised to appoint him consul, a promise that he would certainly have carried out if he had lived longer. So Cassius Dio says he didn't actually make Incitatus a consul, he just planned to. Dio also says that he had Incitatus appointed as a priest, that he really did that. And Suetonius says this. He used to send his soldiers on the day before the games and order silence in the neighborhood to prevent the horse Incitatus from being disturbed. Besides a stall of marble, a manger of ivory, purple blankets, and a collar of precious stones, he even gave this horse a house, a troop of slaves and furniture, for the more elegant entertainment of the guests invited in his name. In AD 40, the last full year of Caligula's life, he embarked on some crazy military expeditions. At one point, he went to the English Channel as if he was going to invade Britain, but then he did something really strange. According to Suetonius, he drew up a line of battle on the shore of the ocean, arranging his ballistas and other artillery, and when no one knew or could imagine what he was going to do, he suddenly bade the soldiers to gather shells and fill their helmets in the folds of their gowns, calling them spoils from the ocean. So he claimed to have taken seashells as spoils from the ocean. You know, spoils are what you take when you rob somebody after you've defeated them in battle. So the implication is he's defeated the sea god Neptune and is now robbing Neptune of these precious seashells as spoils. And he also once said Neptune was afraid of him. Mm. Yeah, who wasn't afraid of him? <laughs> so how did Caligula finally meet his fate? Well, his behavior was becoming so extreme that several conspiracies formed against him, but some of them were discovered, which didn't end well for the conspirators. The conspiracy that finally succeeded involved several Roman senators and the head of the Praetorian Guard, a man named Cassius Chirea. The Praetorian Guard was an elite unit that served as the personal bodyguard of the emperor so, as the head of the Praetorian Guard, Cassius Chirea was charged with Caligula's personal safety. Now, despite the fact that it would seem to be a really bad idea to treat the man charged with your personal safety with contempt, that's exactly what Caligula did. Suetonius reports, Gaius used to taunt him, a man already well on in years, with voluptuousness and effeminacy by every form of insult. When he asked for the watchword, Gaius would give him... Priapus or Venus, 
and when Kyria had occasion to thank him for anything, he would hold out his hand to kiss, forming and moving it in an obscene fashion. Eventually, uh, Cassius had enough of Caligula's insults and humiliations, and he became involved in the conspiracy to kill him. One of the things that's interesting when you read Roman historians is that they were really convinced that events of importance were signaled by omens given by the gods. And they just in history books, they just straightforwardly list these things that, at least in hindsight, were taken as omens of what was about to happen. When I first started reading Roman historians, I was very struck by this and how different it was than what you find in the historical books of the Bible where people weren't looking for omens. I mean, you know, God might give somebody a sign if they asked for it, but they didn't think God was constantly telegraphing omens right and left for every event. To give you a sense of what Roman omen hunting was like, here are some of the omens that Suetonius says preceded the assassination of Caligula. His approaching murder was foretold by many prodigies. The statue of Jupiter at Olympia, which he had ordered to be taken to pieces and moved to Rome, suddenly uttered such a peal of laughter that the scaffoldings collapsed and the workmen took to their heels. And at once a man called Cassius turned up, who declared that he had been bidden in a dream to sacrifice a bull to Jupiter. The capital at Capua was stuck by, struck by lightning on the Ides of March, that is, the day the original Gaius Julius Caesar was assassinated, and also the room of the doorkeeper of the palace at Rome. Some inferred from the latter omen that the danger was threatened to the owner at the hands of his guards, and from the former, the murder of a second distinguished personage, such as had taken place long before on that same day. The soothsayer Sulla, too, when Gaius consulted him about his horoscope, declared that inevitable death was close at hand. The lots of fortune at Antium warned him to beware of Cassius, and he accordingly ordered the death of Cassius Longinus, who was at the time proconsul of Asia, forgetting that the family name of Chirea was Cassius. The day before he was killed, he dreamt that he stood in heaven beside the throne of Jupiter and that the god struck him with the toe of his right foot and hurled him to earth. Some things which had happened on that very day shortly before he was killed were also regarded as, regarded as portents, as he was sacrificing, he was sprinkled with the blood of a flamingo. So, lots of omens about the assassination. So when did the assassination take place? It happened on January 24th of AD 41. At the time, the emperor was watching a series of games and dramatic performances that were being held in honor of the deified emperor Augustus. It was about noon, and Caligula was debating whether to have lunch because he was suffering from indigestion from eating too much the day before, so he wasn't sure if he wanted to have lunch. Eventually, his friends convinced him to go to lunch, and his guard took him out through a cryptoporticus, or an underground corridor, and Suetonius picks up the story. In the covered passage through which he had to pass, some boys of good birth who had been summoned from Asia to appear on the stage were rehearsing their parts and he stopped to watch and to encourage them, and had not the leader of the troop complained that he had a chill, that is a cold, he would have returned and had the performance given at once. From this point, there are two versions of the story. Some say that as he was talking with the boys, Kyria came up behind and gave him a deep cut in the neck, having first cried, Take that! And that then the tribune Cornelius Sabinus, who was the other conspirator and faced Gaius, stabbed him in the breast. Others say that Sabinus, after getting rid of the crowd through, through centurions who were in the plot, 
asked for the watchword, as soldiers do, and that when Gaius gave him Jupiter, he cried, So be it! And as Gaius looked around, he split his jawbone with a blow of his sword. As he lay upon the ground and with writhing limbs called out that he still lived, the others dispatched him with thirty wounds, for the general signal was, Strike again! So, no more Caligula. But... Now that the emperor had been thrown down the reactor shaft on the second Death Star, the Senate (laughs) wanted to restore the Republic. Centuries ago, after the reign of Tarquinius Superbus, or Tarquin the Arrogant, the Romans had thrown off the rule of kings and established a republic, but they had now slid back into effective monarchy again with the rise of the emperors. Some of the senators wanted to reestablish the Republic, and that meant more than just the death of the emperor. It meant eliminating any plausible successor, and thus the death of the entire imperial family. So the plotters didn't just kill Caligula. They also killed his wife and his infant daughter, and they meant to kill his lame, stammering uncle, Claudius. But a soldier found Claudius hiding in terror behind some curtains and unexpectedly hailed him as emperor. This caught on among the soldiers, most of whom didn't want the Republic back, and they got Claudius to safety. With the military at his back, he was soon declared emperor by the Senate, and the Republic did not return. All right, so before we get into the theories, the actual mystery uh, about Caligula's story, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show and all our shows possible, including Alvin W., Diane F., Christian E., Michael B., and Simon M., Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. All right, Jimmy, so back to the story of Caligula and the mystery surrounding him. What are the theories about Caligula? Apart from, you know, minor questions, there are sort of three big ones we're going to look at. The first one is how bad was he really? Was he really as bad as Suetonius and the other sources say? Second, what role did his illness play in his change of governance? And then thirdly, what connection does he have to the Bible? All right. So we'll start this time with the reason perspective. How bad was Caligula really? It's hard to say. All of the surviving historical sources say he was really bad. But, you know, like people in general, some historians are naturally contrarian and like to challenge established ideas. And I appreciate that because I like to see ideas tested lest we fall into groupthink and make mistakes. So some modern historians have tried to at least partially rehabilitate Caligula's memory by arguing he wasn't as bad as some of the sources make out, that some of them are repeating, uh, you know, rumors and exaggerations. And that's quite possible. Uh, Some of what the sources say may not be fully accurate. But when all of the surviving sources say he was a tyrant and his own guard killed him, I mean, that didn't happen to other emperors who have much better reputations and who weren't murdered by their own guards. So it's safe to say that, you know, even though you can debate precisely how bad he was, Caligula was among the worst emperors even if not everything that said about him was true. Yeah, I suppose that since like Tiberius wanted to have a worse emperor to follow him, so he picked uh, mm-hmm. Caligula, I suppose a bad emperor afterward could have tried to make Caligula sound worse in whatever documents or histories are written, but to have all of them uh, yeah. be unanimous. It, 
Exactly. It's kind of like, you know, if you if you look at just one side, I mean, look at what people say about Barack Obama or Donald Trump. You know, you read if you're just reading one side, you'll get them saying all kinds of crazy and accurate stuff. But if everybody on both sides agrees, <laughs> it's, right. it's significant. So what role did his illness play in Caligula becoming a tyrant? This is harder to say. In keeping with standard Roman practice, Caligula's body was cremated. And so it's not like Egypt where we could, you know, go find his mummy and then do medical tests to see what conditions he had in life. Given that we we don't have his body, it's impossible to make a reliable medic, medical diagnosis after 2000 years. As a result, scholars can speculate on whether he went dark side because of his illness or whether it was for other reasons, but we can't really know for sure. Let's turn to the faith perspective. Does Caligula have a connection with the Bible? Not an explicit one. Of all of the emperors in this period, Caligula is the only one who's not mentioned by name in the Bible. Hmm. The New Testament mentions that Augustus was the emperor when Jesus was born. It mentions that John the Baptist and Jesus began their ministries during the reign of Tiberius, Augustus's successor. Then it skips over Caligula and it acts mentions that a famine happened during the reign of Claudius. And then Nero is the one who's referred to as Caesar by the end of Acts during the period and during the period when Paul wrote his letters. So when Paul says honor Caesar in Romans, it's Nero he's talking Nero Caesar he's talking about. But for some reason Caligula isn't mentioned explicitly. He may, however, be part of the background to New Testament prophecy. Oh, how so? There's one aspect of Caligula's reign that we haven't discussed this far, and it's what he did religiously. At this point in history, the Roman cult of emperor worship existed, but it was limited in important ways. From the time of Augustus, emperors would allow, they didn't demand, but they would allow foreign peoples to build temples to them, but the Roman emperors were not usually worshipped in Rome at least during their lifetime. So foreigners can worship the emperor, but Romans don't worship a living emperor. After they died, though, the Roman Senate might declare an emperor to be a god, and that's what happened with Julius Caesar and Augustus. It also later happened with Claudius. But Caligula broke with these precedents. He wanted to be worshipped at Rome in his own lifetime. Suetonius says, he began to lay claim to divine majesty, for after giving orders that such statues of the gods as were especially famous for their sanctity or their artistic merit, including that of Jupiter of Olympia, should be brought from Greece in order to remove their heads and put his own in their place, he built out a part of the palace as far as the forum, and making the temple of Castor and Pollux its vestibule, he often took his place between the divine brethren and exhibited himself there to be worshipped by those who presented themselves. And some hailed him as Jupiter Letiaris, that is, the Roman Emperor Jupiter. He also set up a special temple to his own godhead, with priests and with victims of the choicest kind. In this temple was a life-size statue of the emperor in gold, which was dressed each day in clothing such as he wore himself. The richest citizens used all their influence to secure the priesthoods of his cult and bid high for the honor. The victims were flamingos, peacocks, black grouse, guinea hens, and pheasants, offered day by day, each after its own kind. At night he used constantly to invite the full and radiant moon to his embraces and, in, and his bed, while in the daytime he would talk confidentially 
with Jupiter Capitolinus, that is the Jupiter statue, housed in the main temple on the Capitoline Hill, now whispering and then in turn his ear to the mouth of the god, now in louder and even angry language, for he was heard to make the threat, Lift me up or I'll lift thee. But finally won by entreaties, as he reported, and even invited to live with the god, he built a bridge over the temple to the deified Augustus, and thus joined his palace to the capital. So you can see how dramatic this was. I mean, threatening Jupiter Capitolinus meant threatening the chief manifestation of the chief Roman god. Also, having especially sacred and beautiful statues of the gods, including the Olympian Zeus, brought to Rome so he could have their heads lopped off and replaced with his own. I mean, think about the divine hubris that involves. Cassius Dio also reports that he assumed the guises of multiple gods. When some called him a demigod and others a god, he fairly lost his head. Indeed, even before this, he had been demanding that he be regarded as more than a human being and was wont to claim that he had intercourse with the moon, that victory put a crown upon him, and to pretend that he was Jupiter. And he made this a pretext for seducing numerous women, particularly his sisters. Again, he would pose as Neptune because he had bridged so great an expanse of sea with the pontoon bridge he rode across. He also impersonated Hercules, Bacchus, Apollo, and all the other divinities, not merely males but also females, often taking the role of Juno, Diana, or Venus. Indeed, to match the change of name, he would assume all the rest of the visible attributes that belonged to the various gods so that he might seem really to resemble them. So, you know, he'd dress up and, like, carry implements that represented the different gods, so he would, whether male or female, to make himself look like them. Nero. Later, this is Nero is Claudius's successor. Nero similarly took on divine honors during his own lifetime, and that's part of the background to the cult of emperor worship that we read about in the book of Revelation, where people all over the world worship the beast. The beast is identified in a special way with the line of first century Roman emperors. In Revelation, we're told that the beast rules the world, so check, you know, the Roman emperors did that that it persecutes Christians, check, that it's worshipped by people everywhere, check, that it has seven heads which are seven hills, in other words, the famous seven hills of Rome, check. Also, we're told that the seven heads represent seven kings, five of whom are fallen, one of whom is, and one of whom will reign a little while. The most plausible interpretation of that is that it's the line of Roman emperors, starting with the first emperor, Augustus. In that case, the five emperors who are fallen, you know, who had died by the time Revelation was written, would be Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. The one who is reigning at the time of, of Revelation was Nero's successor, Galba, and the one who would come and reign a short time would be Galba's successor, Otho, who only reigned three months. So Caligula is part of the background of the image of the beast in the book of Revelation. In fact, he, um, you could consider him part of it in a special way because the beast's number in Revelation is 666, uh, which is what Nero Caesar adds up to in Hebrew and Aramaic. But Nero was kind of a toned-down version of Caligula. You know, he, he didn't immediately, he didn't get killed in three years and ten months by his own guard. He lasted longer and before he fell from grace with the Senate and killed himself. 
So he's kind of like a toned down Caligula. And you could, from that perspective, look at Caligula as kind of representing the inner essence of the beast in a special way. In fact, Caligula may be tied into biblical prophecy even more directly. In what way? Well, in the Olivet Discourse, that's Jesus's major prophetic discourse about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. You can read it, for example, in Mark 13. Jesus refers to something called the abomination of desolation, which is also sometimes translated as the abomination which causes desolation. And this is something that was first referred to by the prophet Daniel, and it had a partial fulfillment in the time of the Maccabees when the pagan ruler Antiochus Epiphanes apparently set up a statue of Olympian Zeus in the Jerusalem temple, and that was an abomination that brought about desolation. While not specifying the exact form of that the new desolating sacrilege would take, Jesus indicated that something similar would happen before the temple's destruction in AD 70. Also, note that in Revelation, the beast has a special image, an idol, that people worship. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says that the man of lawlessness will take his seat in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be a god. So you put all those different factors together, and it would have been natural for many early Christians to expect that the beast would go to Jerusalem, a Roman emperor would either personally or through some other means get involved with the Jerusalem temple and cause an abomination of desolation, perhaps by setting up an idol of himself. And so how would Caligula be connected to that? Well, Caligula didn't just want to be worshipped as a god by the Romans. He wanted everyone to worship him including the Jews. I'll spare you the details because they're rather involved, but basically in AD 39, Caligula ordered that a statue of himself be set up in the Jerusalem temple, which was to be renamed the Temple of the Illustrious Gaius, the New Jupiter. Now, that, as you can imagine, caused a huge crisis in the Jewish community across the empire. And frantic attempts were made to try to get Caligula to change his mind. The Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria was part of a delegation that met personally with Caligula. And we have Philo's account of the event, so you can read it. Also, King Herod Agrippa I, uh, he's the one who martyrs the first apostle. He kills James, son of Zebedee, in Acts 12. He was a friend of Caligula. And they'd kind of grown up together. And so he went to Rome to intervene with Caligula and get him to change his mind. And it seems like he had success, at least temporarily. But then Caligula renewed the order to put the, te- put the statue in the temple. At the time, the Roman governor of Syria was the guy that Caligula told to do this. You know, he wrote to Antioch and said, you, Publius Petronius, governor get a statue made and take it down to the temple and rededicate it as the temple of the illustrious Gaius, the new Jupiter. So they're going to worship me now, not Yahweh. Well, Petronius knew that the Jews were not going to accept this. And so he deliberately delayed the installation of the statue as he tried to find a solution. Uh, He delayed all through the year 40, the last year of Caligula's life. And when Caligula got a letter from Petronius urging him to change his mind, 
he became so enraged that he sent back a letter ordering Petronius to kill himself. Caligula also ordered, since Petronius had said the statue he was having built in Antioch was not ready, Caligula also ordered a statue to be built in Rome, and he planned to take it to Jerusalem and personally have it installed in the temple. And it was at that moment that Cassius Chirea and his co-conspirators killed Caligula. The order to install his statue in the Jerusalem temple was now a dead letter. And fortunately for Publius Petronius, news of Caligula's assassination reached Syria before he killed himself. <laughs> so he got to live. Yeah. Jews, of course, saw Caligula's assassination as divine judgment on him, uh, in part for having been so presumptuous as to want to have his statue involved in the, installed in the temple of God. All of these events are often cited, and they're by biblical scholars, they're often called the, the Caligula crisis. And they would have, you know, loomed really large in the minds of the early Christians in the years just afterwards. Even though Caligula didn't succeed in his plans, in light of Jesus's prophecies and other prophecies that were floating around in the first century in the Christian community, Christians would have seen the Caligula crisis as foreshadowing what the Antichrist will eventually do. And so, like when Paul wrote Second Thessalonians, about a decade after the Caligula crisis, uh, he would have understood the actions of the man of lawlessness as in some way recapitulating what Caligula tried to do. Uh, this means that if you want to know what the final enemy of God, the Antichrist, will be like, he's likely to resemble Caligula as well as Nero and Hitler and other forerunners of the Antichrist. So Caligula seems to form part of the background to biblical prophecy. All right, Jimmy, so what's your bottom line on the Mad Emperor Caligula? Caligula was a really evil dude. He was a horrible tyrant who demanded to be worshipped as a god. It's debated precisely how horrible he was, but the answer is still really horrible. It's also debatable what role his illness played in his deterioration. And he's a forerunner of the Antichrist and thus part of the background of biblical prophecy. So, you know, we need to be on the lookout for future Caligulas because what happened once can happen again. So, Jimmy, what further resources can folks consult to learn more about this topic? We'll have links to Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars, including Caligula and the emperors that surrounded him. We'll also have a link to Philo's Embassy to Gaius. That's where he and a party of Jewish dignitaries from Alexandria tried to convince Caligula to back off on the statue thing. We'll have a link to Robert Graves's book, I, Claudius, which covers up through the end of Caligula's reign. And then also its sequel, the book Claudius the God and his wife Messalina, which picks up right at the point of Caligula's assassination and shows you how Claudius became emperor and also the role of Herod Agrippa in that event. We'll also have a link to the I, Claudius TV series that was made back in the 70s. And I, I should let you know, I mean, this series is amazingly well done. I mean, it has 1970s production values, so some of the sets are cardboard painted to look like marble, but it's still amazingly well done. It's amazingly written. It is amazingly well cast. The actors are awesome in their parts, but it is not for the faint hearted. There is some, even though it was a TV show in the 70s, there is disturbing stuff in here. So be aware of that. Also, it has John Hurt, the actor John Hurt, who as a very young man played Caligula here. As an older man, he played the war doctor. So mm -hmm. 
and you've probably seen him in other roles. There's also a great bit in this. One of the things that they do, both in the books and in the TV show, Bry Claudius, is they they tie Christianity into it more than you might suspect just by like reading Suetonius. So actually in the TV show, Caligula has the idea that he's going to be the Jewish Messiah. And that's part of why he's putting his temple in his statue in the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to be the Messiah of the Jews and stuff. And then as when Claudius is an old man, he has a vision of all of the people he's known in his life, including Caligula. And Caligula leans forward and says to him, guess what, Uncle Claudius? I wasn't that Messiah after all. You could have knocked me over with a feather when they told me. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. We'll also, of course, have uh, Wikipedia's articles on Caligula and Germanicus. All right. So that's our mysterious resources. Let's uh, talk about some mysterious feedback from listeners. Uh, This feedback all concerns our recent episode on the mysterious death of CIA scientist Frank Olson. Uh, And the first feedback comes from Timothy J on Facebook, who says, My dad was a paid subject for experiments at the U.S. Naval Medical Research Center in Bethesda, Maryland in the 1950s. He said several times that he thought he was unknowingly given LSD. After one session, he said he considered jumping from a balcony and just flying home since it would be faster and easier and more fun. But he decided not to because people would notice and it might be embarrassing. I uh, know Timothy J. personally, and I did not know that about his dad. That is amazing. And it does, you know, provide evidence of someone, maybe why someone might want to leap out of a window if they're on LSD at the moment. Of course, Mm -hmm. that doesn't apply to Frank Olson, who was given LSD 10 days earlier and apparently was insensitive to its effects. But wow, I did not know that uh, Tim J's dad uh, may have been given LSD by the CIA. Uh, and then Nicholas J writes on Facebook, just finished listening a couple days ago. Good episode, by the way. And this pops up on one of the news aggregators. Talk about synchronicity. And uh, Nicholas provides a link to a book review about the new book on Sidney Gottlieb, which we'll have in Mysterious Headlines. Uh, And then Agent JS09 on YouTube writes, it doesn't seem like the CIA is any better than the KGB in terms of its tactics. The only difference I can see is that the CIA is more vulnerable to publicity. But as long as they can keep stuff secret, they can get away with anything. Makes me not want to trust the government. And it brings to mind a a long time saying sunshine is the best disinfectant Mm -hmm. and uh, government secrecy breeds misdeeds, just like secrecy in general does. There needs to be sufficient. I mean, obviously, we can't declassify everything, but there needs to be sufficient uh, oversight and sunlight to keep people from misbehaving because that's human nature. And then Michael D. sends this audio feedback by email. Hey, Dom, Jimmy. Absolutely love the show. Patreon supporter, and I just love that uh, my Catholic brothers are out there engaging the culture. It's really awesome. Never put anybody down. You always look at the bright side. It's uh, refreshing. I just finished listening to the episode about Frank Olson, and you mentioned a couple of times about government-paid assassins in the employee of the CIA. I guess it's kind of akin to a, a military sniper or say a unmanned drone pilot doing their duties. But I've always had a little concern with killing people clandestine or, you know, kind of sneaky. Interested in your thoughts on the faith perspective of that. And again, guys, love the show. 
keep up the good work. Really appreciate your comments, Michael, and your support on Patreon. Thank you very much. In terms of the question you ask, yeah, you make a good analogy. Government assassins are in the same sort of category as a government sniper or a drone pilot. And there are situations where it can be legitimate to target people and take them out. So assassination is not in principle wrong. In fact, Catholic moral teaching talks about situations where regicide, you know, getting rid of a tyrant or technically tyrannicide, killing a tyrant like Caligula can be morally justified when there's no other way to deal with the grave and lasting harm that's being done. And so assassinations like the one that happened with Caligula can be morally justified. And that means the same thing can potentially be morally justified today, but we have to be really careful about it because it's also easy to just try to get rid of people who are inconvenient and you don't like, like Frank Olson, rather than people who have committed actual horrific ongoing crimes like Caligula. All right. And thank you, everyone, for your feedback. We do love getting it from you. So, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? Two items, both of which deal with the government secrecy theme. The first one is a review that Nicholas J. linked. It's a book review of The Poisoner-in-Chief about Sidney Gottlieb, who is the head of the MKUltra project that seems to have done in or been related to the death of uh, Frank Olson. The other one is a new set of documents that have been released. They were obtained by the Washington Post using our old friend, the Freedom of Information Act, and they are a history of the Afghanistan war that began in 2001. They're uh, sometimes being called now the Afghanistan Papers in parallel to the Pentagon Papers that were released decades ago that were a history of the Vietnam War. So when whenever we fight a war, there's always an internal secret classified history of it that is written to try to help future generals and officials learn lessons from it. The Pentagon Papers were leaked to the public back during the Vietnam War and said things are not going as well as the public has been led to believe. And so now the Afghanistan papers have been have been not leaked, but released by Freedom of Information Act. And they also are suggesting that, especially in the early days of the wars of the war, the uh, government may have misled the public. Surprise, surprise about what was happening over there. All right. Thank you for those headlines. Uh, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is going to be about dark matter, dark energy, and the case of the missing universe. Ooh, interesting. All right, so that's it from us. Uh, What do you think of what uh, Jimmy had to say about the Mad Emperor Caligula? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page or by sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. If you have not yet done so, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube, where if you do, hit the bell to get notifications. Uh, our YouTube channel is, our, is, you can search for SQPN on YouTube. You can find links to Jimmy's resources that he uh, provided from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. 
Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for sharing with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>